welcome to Why the Last Podcast. This is Grim for at Exile Grim. I'd like to introduce the people who will be speaking today. We have Lacey. How you doing, Lacey? Good. How are you, Grim? I'm good. What's your handle? Uh, at Embalmarama. Uh, Mike, how you doing? Uh, you know, I'm I'm alive. Uh, <laughs> hope everyone else is also alive and doing well. And my handle is. <laughs> Uh, the audience can't see this, but Jackie's kind of given that eh signal to me, Ish. to all of us. Um, but my at is uh, Mike X Nichols. And then uh, last but not least, we have Jackie. Jackie, how you doing? I'm wonderful. Alive-ish. Alive-ish. It's a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have watched episode four and five of Why the Last Man. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, the through lines. Uh, we're going to be jumping a little bit from plot to plot, kind of focusing more on the individual characters in it. Um, so to start off with uh, some big changes in Washington happening in the story. So Agent 355 and Yorick are camping out in the woods on their way to Boston, dismantling parts of the crashed helicopter, which she tells us she learned to do in Iraq. York wants to get to know her, but she remains closed off. And he suspects 355 had something to do with the helicopter's crash. On the way to D.C., Hero and Sam arrive at a big, empty house with tons of land. And Hero insists they rest for the night, but Sam is reluctant. Hero tells Sam about her old horse-riding coach, Karen, and her homeschooled son, Benji. They find an old car in a barn that actually runs. Amazing. And they agree to save the night. Sam is anxious about getting his testosterone, getting to safety. And Hero is obviously reluctant. You can see that she is willing to do whatever to avoid dealing with the consequences of her her actions. And uh, even if it's hurting her closest friend. When Sam is asleep, Hero sneaks off to the barn and destroys the car. Yeah, Hero's uh, tendency for self-sabotage becoming literal mechanical sabotage. Literal. It's so cruel that she does this to someone that she clearly loves so much. It's just nuts. And now, um, back to Yorick in 355, he's uh, watching old videos of Beth on his phone and being a sad boy. And uh, Agent 355 asks him to get undressed so she can wash his clothes. Um, uh, in the morning, Sam can't get the car started and he just, he thinks he knows why, but he doesn't want to accept it. They go look for a pharmacy. They don't find anything, but they do find an injured Mackenzie, daughter of our Nora from DC. Hero notices Mackenzie's leg and attempts to help her, but Nora attacks her with an ax. Um, after disarmament, Hero informs them that the wound is infected and she cleans it as best she can and suggests that Nora and Mackenzie stay and rest where she and Sam are staying. And we're back to Agent 355, um, washing clothes in the river, stalking a rabbit, um, coming back to camp, and she finds two women rifling through her and Yorick's belongings, asking for food. They ask why she has two tents, why she has all these things, and uh, Yorick runs out from nowhere, chasing them off with a big stick. And uh, 355 is disappointed with him, but Yorick says, well, I stopped you from killing another person, so, you know, you're welcome. In typical Yorick fashion. Um, and then they head masked up to a market 
a busy market full of people. So this is like the most dangerous place where York could possibly be. Um, or 355 spies a motorcycle and starts to um, try and finagle her way into driving off with it. And York thinks he sees Beth and chases after her through a full lot of people um, until he finds himself in trouble with some police women who come upon him, question him, hit him, and order him to take off his masks. He gets on his knees. They remove his mask. He says he's looking for testosterone because he learned that trick from the last time he got demasked. And then 355 shows up and kills everybody because that's what she does. So kind of makes you wonder how many York, people York has forced 355 to kill in spite of the ones that he tries to save by chasing off the stick, you know? Yeah. So with 355, we actually start with like a, I guess it's sort of like a quasi vision slash flashback of her. Um, and that's actually, that's actually Ashley Roman's singing and dancing um, on that stage as 355. Really? Yes. Yeah. That is actually her, um, uh, her versatility. I love that. Cause she does that. And then later in the episode, I don't think she kills any of the women. She just, whoops their asses really bad which you know uh, you know <laughs> Close basically <enough. laughs> ruining ruining someone's life versus just leaving them you know killing them eh, debatable uh, um yeah <laughs> but it, she does get a lot of range like the uh, ashley roman's definitely she's definitely getting a lot of room here to uh show her skills um and yeah though i really like that we get to see 355's vulnerability um because it's sort of like we get to see that and she's also like got her secrets, right? Because she's clearly bothered. Like there's something that's bothering her about that. And York can kind of see that. But of course, she's guarded. She's not going to tell him anything. And he's trying to get to know her. And she's just like, you know, n- n- no, dude. And but she reveals enough to know that like that the name that she was given by Secret Service isn't real, her real name. She tells him that. Um, and, but not enough to really get to know her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When he says... um when he she says to call uh her 355 and he said call me trapezoid i lost it <laughs> so funny so funny such because a jokester it is a little ridiculous you know i mean it's it's he's kind of like really we're gonna be together and you, you're gonna make me do this you can't even just make up like claire you know in the meantime yeah right that's what you did for the president you can call me sarah you can call me whatever you like you know yeah, exactly. I I do enjoy um, all of the Yorick three fifty five dynamic, and obviously that's going to keep going on for a while. They're already they're showing him escaping her yet again. Like that's definitely going to be the theme. Is <laughs> she's literally bringing him to the market? Because if she left him like half a mile outside the market and told him to sit down, he would absolutely just go to the market. So oh. she's now having to weigh all of her options and like making him an eyesight is kind of a requirement at this point. Cause he can't just chill. One of my favorite parts of these two episodes is in five where she leaves him by this back door <laughs> yeah. and says, don't wander and gives him a knife, which he is so useless with this knife. There's nothing he's going to be able to do with this knife. You know, but the first thing he does is turn around and he finds trouble a half a foot away from him. He starts picking a lock and creeping into buildings. He cannot help himself and it's such a good allegory for his privilege you know what i mean like here yeah. you got this white guy who grew up in an upper middle class educated family like he doesn't even have any sense of where the the the, the consequences of his actions will land him in this post-apocalyptic landscape he still carries that blindness that privilege 
yeah, I, I like that angle a lot. Um, although I'm pretty sure we can all do that as a straight white man. I think that's how the boundaries work for everyone, right? That's Absolutely. my experience is everyone's experience for sure. Oh, I've cried my way out of a lot of cop cars. Let me tell you. <laughs> I I also, I can absolutely see the reason he's picking the lock because he could be like, listen, I was not wandering. Uh, wandering is out and about. I went indoors. Like I can absolutely imagine that conversation happening. Yep. He always knows how to reason himself out of it. And she's just like, this is like entitlement 101 with you. Absolutely. I think 355 likes playing the straight man to a degree. She likes being the responsible one. I don't know what kind of a uh, past she has. I think we'll find out more as these episodes go by, but um, she's used to watching out for her own back. That's actually a good question, Jackie. So we get some more development in 355 and some more insights into the Culpa ring, and you are not, uh, you did not read the comic, and I'm curious what you, what vibes you're getting from 355 when she uh, ends up meeting with a fellow Culpa Ring agent? Oh my goodness. So many questions, obviously. It's that, that kind of excitement where I can't, I can't wait to find out more because um, she's obviously the most fascinating character in the series. You know, 355 is the woman. She's the man woman. Um, God, that was a terrible way to say that. Um, <laughs> nah, it works. We know what you mean. <laughs> no, I... Uh, I want to know more about, there's this moment in, I think it was five, where she cracks her sat phone in half to give herself an excuse to sneak off and go check out this Fran person who, from what I gather, was her um, her direct um, predecessor, whoever she took her orders from. And she runs into this other agent who almost mirrors her exactly. However they were trained must have been brutal, difficult training because the both of them are limping and out of breath after their little skirmish. It was wild. Um, I can't wait to learn more about this Fran character. I cannot wait. Uh, Mike, what were you thinking? Yeah, so I actually really enjoy... So one, like, it's, again, like, all three, like, we'll have to get into it a little bit later, but, like, we meet Dr. Mann and Yorick and, you know... 355 they all have secrets and they're all very guarded they don't fully trust each other so that's part of it right like 355 she wants to kind of go on this extracurricular um trip but she's obviously doesn't want to tell anyone what she's doing um but yeah she uh this is like this is an event that doesn't happen in the comic but it's something that spiritually feels like very appropriate yes it it's and it, i like that it's happening so early right because it it there's this sort of this undercurrent with the culpa rain where people don't trust them and they don't fully understand them. So that means they inherently uh, are very skeptical of 355 and her ten intentions. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, uh, I like the mention and the illusion when she basically said like, you know, Oh, you got pulled out of foster care. Like they're definitely establishing how young they were when they got involved in all this, that they, this is not, you know, there was no CIA recruiter in their high school. This was something way, way earlier. Yes. It wasn't aspirational. This was, this was um, the exploitative to a degree. Yes. What about you, Lacey? So I really like getting into that because um, that happens in episode five, but in episode four, I think that you start kind of like, when we open with her having like her fantasy dream and she's like sleepwalking and stuff, you can tell that things are weighing on her very heavily. She has a lot of 
things on her mind and we haven't really gotten into her backstory too much. So when they bring that up, when she meets, uh, when she meets the other agent at Fran's house, you can see that like, she is like kind of like a broken person and she's been molded to do this job. And I feel like she feels like a lot of guilt and she's like experienced like trauma and it's really like affected her and who she is as a person. So I really like that. And I'm excited to see how much further they get into that. And if they're going to like stray from the comic storyline, because they get into it in the comic. So I would like to see what they do with that. Um, I thought that that was like really nice. And I, w- when you were talking about how those agents mirror imaged each other, Jackie, I, I love that. Like watching them kick each other's ass was, I feel like probably one of the most intense scenes in the whole series so far. Yes, it was like 355 met her match for the first time. Yeah. Amazing. It actually reminded me a lot of um, some of the cinematography on that reminded me of the Born pen fight from the original Born Identity. Oh, wow. Um, when he's going against, it was Born going against another person from the, uh, what was it, the Touchstone Foundation or whatever it was. So the same program he was in, he had to fight someone who knew how he fought. Oh, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I got, I, like, some of the cinematography really reminded me of that in, in, in good ways, so. Um, that I thought that was pretty impressive. Another thing that I, um, I guess we're kind of going into episode, we're dipping into episode five as well, just because it sort of leaks into, but like with, we kind of get to see 355 get her signature uh, weapon, if you will, um, that she uses in the comic. And we, she just has it from the beginning in the comic, but here we actually get to see how she gets it. Um, it's kind of done more organically right? Like her baton basically that she uses um, to disarm people and beat the shit out of them for lack of a better description. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that, that, uh, that like tink sound, like the metal sound, uh, that's like a very common uh, sound effect in the comic. Um, You know, things about are about to go down whenever she whips that out. I know. I love that. I was like cheering in my living room. I was like, yes. (laughs) They did the reveal of the baton. <laughs> Get her ass queen. Get him. I was doing her. the same thing when I heard the noise. And uh, it actually kind of reminded me of um, the framing on uh, the Netflix Daredevil show. When he gets his baton, it like was kind of the same setup for like, because he doesn't start with it in the show. It's not till like the end of the first season. He basically gets it. And it, it's kind of the same triumphant, you know, clink sound. I don't know. I, I, I like that. Yeah, no, I, and the thing is it, it's all, <laughs> it's all done purposefully because again, like uh, we can, we can get in this if you want, but there's some going to be some people who are going to be impatient about like this, like, Oh, why do we have to sit through this? It's like, well, because this is all like organically happening and there's going to be things that that that's going to be something that is a recurrent thing throughout the series. But also like there's a moment in the comic um, that I assume they're going to build to, um, with that, I don't want to spoil it, but like, it'll be more emotionally satisfying if you build up to it than just like have it happen out of presumably nowhere, right? So like, there, these things have to take you have to take your time. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely going to be comic fans. Anytime you do any kind of comic rendition, there's going to be fans who get mad about any changes, and my response is always the same: the comic is still there. Like, if you want an exact version of the comic, it exists. Just, you know, go read it. Like, enjoy yourself that way. But it's nice to try and blend something you're familiar with 
with new plot points, new developments, and try to smooth out rough edges that existed in the original one. I mean, that's always, you know, the the method for improvement is always there, and I think that's a good thing. What do you think, Mike? Speaking of which, uh, sorry, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but speaking of smoothing out rough edges, do we want to talk about Hero and Sam, and specifically Sam's character? Oh, hell um, yeah. Because that representation in the comic... It's it's something that I think is important and had to be modernized. Yeah. What do you think, Jackie? That's a great place to dip back into the uh, recap, actually, because that should be right where we are here um, when Nora and Mac get back to the uh, safe house. Um, let's see. Hero gets into bed with Sam, and they talk up the possibilities of staying and living there. Um, and they start getting a little handsy, having a, a very intense kiss. But Sam pulls away and asks her what happened to the car. And Hero can't answer him because this is this is this is her way of trying to apologize without having to be accountable for her behavior at all. She's trying to draw him to the reality of just staying there, just being who they are, which means manifestly changing who Sam is. You know, he cannot be who he is if he does not get the treatment that he requires. But that doesn't matter to Hero and her narcissistic abuse. Um, very, very heavy moment. Huge. Oh, I totally um, agree. Interrupted very shortly afterwards when Nora hears a strange cry outside the house and three women approach on horses. And this is, I believe, our introduction to the Amazons? Are these the same people? <laughs> uh yeah well i was gonna say um you know in episode four it really felt like you get really into hero and yorick and like we've said multiple times so far it's like they're both very privileged and very entitled and you see that entitlement play out to the point where it's like affecting other people around them the decisions that yorick makes puts uh 355 in some serious uh shit whenever she has to beat down all those security guards at that market. And then also, like you were saying, like Hero just totally disregards like Sam's, um, you know, like his desires, like wh what he wants to do. Like he needs to get there because he needs this, he, he needs his testosterone and she totally disregards it. So I think that that episode really puts into perspective the entitlement and the privilege that both of those characters have. Really well put. Absolutely. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think like to lead into that, Sam says like very plainly, like bluntly to Hero, like I have to field questions and like like people because there's like this you know, knowledge, oh, everyone with a Y chromosome died, he immediately gets questioned. You know, he can't go about his business without someone asking him like, What are you basically? Yeah. Um which is like horrible, like a horrible way to go about your life. And um, also like there's the body dysmorphia, you know, there's all these other things that he has to deal with that like no one else has to deal with. Um, and he gave up this opportunity to go with other uh, transgender uh, men because they took the, basically they took their own supply of testosterone and went away and he stayed, Sam stayed behind for hero. Um, so he gave up that opportunity uh, and you know, this leads into basically, uh, you know, there is like a moment of transphobia. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, in the comics, um, do they delve into uh, Sam's uh, friend group at all and their motivations for leaving him behind? Not really? Yeah. No. Uh, did... Yeah. Mikey. Is it about ahead, Hero? Sorry. No, you can take that, Mike. Um, well, uh, and, and Lacey can speak on this more, too, but I'll just say Sam was basically uh, made for the show. Sam is a character who wasn't in the comic. Uh, transgender people aren't represented as much like they're they're there but they're not it's very much like it's it's not intentionally harmful but yes it it is sort of like their their representation isn't great they're not very much present right and i would even go like they're mentioned three times in the comics uh from my rereading that i remember and almost all three times it's both they use the slur but on top of it, they also point out, oh, yeah, they're being horribly exploited because they're like they basically became sex slaves. Like the, that's kind of the the implication or just outright stated each time. Holy fuck. Yeah, yeah that is bleak. It, it needed and, to uh, be, that uh, may still happen. Updated. So, yeah, that's so. And I think that's a good segue into what do we feel about this, how they have adapted the story from the comics to the show. And, you know, that was a controversy with the comics is like the treatment of transgender people in the comics is like, there's no representation. And it's like, this is a story about chromosomes and and gender, and they're not represented at all. So I think that it was such an important decision to have like a main character be a trans man, and to explain like, what it is like for him in this world now. Because it's not it's, he's gonna have to deal with so much transphobia. And you watch it happen, and not even just by the Amazons, but by his own best friend. Like, Hero is also disregarding his feelings completely. So I think it's, like, a much more nuanced, um, uh, like, representation. And I love the addition of him in there because I think that it's really important to see what it's going to be like in this world now for transgender men. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that exactly what Walking Dead did with Daryl anyways? And he was like the best character on the series anyhow? Much. I didn't know that Daryl was trans, to be honest. He... <laughs> no, he was created for the show, though, wasn't he? Um, he was. Yeah. Yeah, he was He was an addition added. Um, and he became like a major character, even though he's not in the comic. But he's not now a beloved character. So, I mean, I hope that that happens for Sam, that we get a full journey with Sam and he becomes like a beloved character that has like an organic, like an organically um, woven like arc into the overall story. And yeah, like it needed that, like Lacey said, like we needed that representation because there are no main transgender characters in the comic. It has a very binary view of gender, which is not, you know, it's very antiquated. It's not accurate. Whether it means to be harmful or not, it's, it's, you know, it is not um, an accurate representation um, of actual like, gender you know it it ties sex very like strictly to the chromosome to the to the y and x chromosomes which is as we know not accurate um so that's this was a great opportunity for the show to say hey um we are going to be doing things differently and we need to include transgender people and you know there are Lacey can speak on this uh, more than i can but there are transgender people who are you know skeptical and and they've historically been burnt, so I think that's absolutely fair. 
um, you know, they're they're worried. And I think that's okay because historically they've been poorly treated or just not represented. Misunderstood at best. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that um I think that what I have seen the responses, uh, reviews online, I have seen people be wary. And like you were saying, Mike, like I think that that is totally acceptable to see this story because let's be honest, like if we're getting down into the technicalities of the chromosomes, like we lost like many women as well as men in this event. Like this show is affirming that trans women are women and trans men are men. And so we didn't just lose men. We lost a lot of women that day too. And I think that that's something that they never talk about in the comics, you know, like it, it's, it's never fully developed. So I love that they did that. And then it goes into kind of like us meeting Dr. Man. We get even deeper into it. But I think that, I think I totally see like people, uh, uh, the trans community being like wary and maybe a little doubtful and, and, you know, worried that it's not being done in good faith. And I'm totally, um, you know, sympathetic to that, that feeling, because I really think that, uh, like you were saying, Mike, they've been burned many times. Like, I don't think people really understand gender, like they are gender essentialists. So they don't understand that there is like, how Dr. Mann says there's many, many variations of gender. And York even says to her in that episode, like, you just explained to me that gender doesn't exist. And she was like, no, I did not explain that to you. I said that gender has many variations. That's completely different, completely different. So I think that, I think that where they're taking that and, and really getting into it and talking about it is something that they had to do for the show. I saw a criticism I actually didn't agree with um, where someone was saying that Dr. Mann's speech felt a little too on the nose to like try and um, uh, it was they they uh, said they basically felt it was a little too explanatory to be like, listen, we're not the comics. And I actually had the exact opposite impression um, where I mean, it is doing that, but it also is like totally in line with Dr. Mann being a harvard professor whose specialty is literally like sexual representation through chromosomes like of course she would like be obsessed with like you know actually knowing her shit and of course she would like have an intricate understanding of like why just anyone with the y chromosome dying is far more complex than even you know her students would understand let alone the audience like that that seems like a totally appropriate and correct attitude. And it would make sense that she would get pissed at Yorick for, you know, basically belittling her work without even knowing it. What do you think, Jackie? How brilliant was it for them to use Yorick as the the cis white guy to bounce these these questions and these concepts off of, you know? This illustrates some very, very complicated ideas for an audience who may never have met a trans person or have any idea of how uh, a gender um, spectrum would work, you know? So that's, I thought that was really, really well done. Yeah. Like our president said, there's at least three genders. Let's just start with three and we can go from there. All right. <laughs> it's a step up. We'll take it. Fuck. I, I can't stop imagining <laughs> like Joe Biden having gender explained to him by Dr. Man. That's an image that just keeps popping up in my head. <laughs> He like has to keep stopping her. He's like, now wait a minute, wait a minute, Doctor Man. 
explain okay, so to some me some of the fellas are kind of fellas and so like he's just trying to understand it and it just he just can't he's like oh come on man <laughs> come on jack or jill it's like trying to it's like trying to tell your grandpa <laughs> like trying to explain something on the internet to your grandpa exactly like something extremely <laughs> online and he's just not getting it. he's like oh man i just i don't understand you kids Oh, I'm too old for this shit. Which is good because it's the only thing that lets me feel like I'm not middle aged. So you know, that's the one line of defense between us and the boomers. It's all we got now. It's all we got. Um, Um, sorry. So, so yeah, I mean, just to sort of tie this up, um, Hero and Sam basically they they're put into a really scary position, right? Because these women, this faction of women, whether the Amazons or not, I'm assuming they are because they haven't referred to themselves as such, but maybe that's just a modernization of it, but they come back to this home. And what we thought was an empty home was actually basically one of their, you know, stations, if you will, one of their like properties and they're confronted and basically like threatened. Um, but they're able to leverage hero's abilities and knowledge as an EMT to help an, another Amazon woman who was wounded. Um, and this takes them over to another place uh, where they try to render help. Um, there's also, I, I should probably say this, there's this scene with uh, Sam where he's basically like, where one of the Amazon women is transphobic and basically asks, acts as if he chose to be a man when in reality he is a man. It's like a reaffirmation yep. of like, no, he didn't, you know, transgender people don't choose to be transgender. They are who they are. Yeah. That was a really good opportunity to use that in that, that moment. That was powerful. It, it definitely makes me worried because Sam is such an instructional character to a viewpoint, but I also feel like if we're taking odds on who survives the next two episodes, Sam is not in the top half. Oh, oh. I, I hope. Know. I hope that does. I mean, because it's so nice to have like that representation. Like, I hope they don't. Cause again, it's like transgender people are going to be so weary and it's like killing him off. Like I want him to also like, I like his character. I want him to live like a full and happy life, even though I know it's a hard world um, that these characters are in. I just, I hope he at least makes it to the end of the season. If they use his death to straighten hero out, <laughs> I will put a hole in some plaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it i mean i could also see kind of a uh hero agrees to be radicalized if they release sam kind of thing because it's definitely like the the uh if i uh, it's been a while since i read the first part of the comics but the uh i remember they were even like getting mad about women who like had masculine traits the amazons like it was like it was definitely uh even if you you know, have a little bit of an androgynous look that was enough for them to get mad at you. So, you know, it's, they're all basically turfs. So it's, it's, it doesn't bode well long run wise, but luckily for now, there at least there's some modicum of uh, calmness. So let's, let's see how long that yeah. lasts. We're yeah. Nervous. To cap that off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to cap it off, basically Roxanne, the leader of the group walks in and, she like she's clearly the alpha, right? Because she walks in, just owns the place. Which Missy Pyle, she's great. Like so far, like I'm really impressed. Like she didn't get a lot of time because it's her introduction, but like she does a lot with a little. And for now, things are like 
they're welcoming their guests, so to speak. But yeah, there is a there is that energy, right? Of like, okay, things could go south really quick here for this group. Well, there's that moment where the the injured Amazonian Kate is on the the table, and Hero is desperately trying to save her to save everyone's life because obviously these women are not fucking around and they're going to kill them for being in their space and um hero is just about got her stable with what little she has you know roxanne walks up and just shoots kate just immediately ends her and it's so cruel and so calculating and honestly realistic for their survival standpoint but it is a a brutal brutal point and i hope that they continue that tradition with these characters i hope they they stay brutal because i don't know what a affectionate uh look at these turfs could uh could do to the show yeah i mean it it is kind of fun that they're like horse girl turfs and they are like (laughs) gonna embrace the worst parts of themselves (laughs) oh my god that's a good description for them too it, it, I mean, it's like, it's true though. And it's, uh, I have known those people for the record. Uh, like the, the horse girl turf is very much a very, like you go to a stable and that that's about half of the people there. Yes. Um, I think we talked about yeah. this before that scary <laughs> demographic of white middle-aged women who came from privileged backgrounds and are activated politically now and are so fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yes. It, uh, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting, especially because they got a Costco now, apparently. And it's, de- <laughs> you know, I mean, it, I want a Costco in that situation. What are you thinking, Mike? Yeah. And I also wanted to bring up, like, I think this is a good chance to kind of show, because in the comic, we see Hero and um, she gets radicalized, right? So it's like, how does that happen to somebody? And so I think it's kind of like, I think it's actually really smart to show uh, Nora McKenzie. Uh, you know, Nora is like a previous staffer at the White House. You basically like they don't have any use for her. Right. So she just gets discarded and then she gets left behind by her friends. So it's just her and her daughter. Right. You know, and they're desperate for help. And then Hero and Sam have their own like needs. And it's like, how do you get how do people get radicalized? Right. So it's like, how does this group get people to join in and like be brutal and basically brutally murder people? Because that's what that that's very much like what they do. Um so, you know, we're going to see that happen, I assume, throughout this season. Like, you know, it's, it's not just going to be an overnight uh, thing. Like, it's going to be a gradual arc. But, uh, Lacey, you can pick up from there. Yeah, so it's interesting that you say that because in the comics, you know, we see Hero become a Amazon, but we don't, we don't really get to see her arc as far as, like, why she becomes an Amazon. She just kind of is. Um, and I don't know if that's the route that they're going to take in the show. So we'll see what happens there. But I think that, you know, you can see how they are using the vulnerability of those characters like Nora and McKenzie. Like she says it, uh, they're sitting ducks. Like they're very vulnerable. Like she has been mugged multiple times. So even if she has anything of value, it's not like she could trade it. Like she's trying to protect her kid. Um so I feel like groups like that really like uh, they prey upon people that are vulnerable and weak, like even the other women that are in the Amazons and Roxanne, I feel like is like really intimidating towards them, like using their weaknesses against them in the moment, like totally manipulating them. That was really well said. It was well said. I um I don't know. I'm excited about because I think Nora is going to make the biggest 180 
I think she's either going to become a lieutenant or a rival with uh, Roxanne. Um, because the first thing she gets characterized as is an extremely good liar, an extremely well-versed like political animal. Like those are the two things that come off. Cause right now we're in the sad arc, but it's easy to forget her first introduction was basically like lying to a bunch of journalists right off the cuff in order to like solidify uh, a degree of political power with her, uh, her proximity to the president basically. Yes. So she's definitely got the skills in a group, a large enough group dynamic to either take over or become a really powerful lieutenant. And I, there's also the like Sam is a bargaining chip because now that they have someone who's an EMT, uh, you know, cause again, that's going to be a, a, you know, fewer uh, women who are EMTs than men. That's just going to be a rare resource they want to hold on to. Oh, you you mean a hero though? Sam is hero's friend. Hero's the or uh, sorry, I said yeah. yeah. I meant I meant hero. Um, but uh, with uh, fewer women as EMTs, hero is going to be a valuable resource. The group is just not going to give up, and I can absolutely imagine using Sam as a bargaining chip and basically saying, "Well, let Sam live," and like you know, if you basically remain our you know Doctor Quinn medicine woman for you know the foreseeable future. <laughs> So I don't know if you noticed or if you have any, um, if you guys have any theories kind of about where the Amazons have come from, but the fact that they're all holed up inside of a woman's shelter for like domestic violence victims is very interesting to me. And I'm wondering if that is going to be how they kind of explain what the Amazons are, because you don't really get explanation for it in the comics. I mean, literally, the lady who leads the Amazons in the comics is just like, I beat Bobby Fischer in a chess match. And it's like so superficial. And you're like, okay, so you were radicalized, like in hate men. <laughs> how did that so, happen? Right. So I'm interested to see if this is what how they're going to make the origin story of this group. You know, I mean, they haven't even called them the daughters of the Amazons or anything. I don't know if they ever will. Um but it is really interesting. I thought that that was like a, a little tidbit that I was like, is this what they're going to do? They're going to they're gonna bring in the domestic violence stuff and be like, go from there? I don't know what you guys think, but that was my first Absolutely. thought. Absolutely. Yeah, that yeah. was my impression. That's great. No, that's a great observation. And the comic, it's interesting because like the Amazons, it's more of like an idea almost. Like the, the comic gets a little reductive with it at times, but like basically there's multiple groups of women who have been radicalized. Right. And they all like, they share some ideologies, but they're like regional, there's like different regional, like affiliates almost, I want to say. Um, and they're all over the world, like in, in, in the comics. So it's like interesting because yeah, you get a chance to be a little more nuanced here and say like, Oh, well, why? Like, where did they come from? Cause they didn't yeah. just spring up out of nowhere. I also think it's entirely possible that it's a crossover faction too. Like I can imagine some of the people that, uh, uh, were encountered outside of Boston, uh, the cops specifically who caught Yorick. I have a feeling that, at least a couple of them might be Amazons or they may just be like part of an information network working together informally. Um, I feel like that news is going to get back to some degree. 
Um, I don't know how much they are going to buy his uh, his testosterone story much longer, especially if uh, as time goes on, it's just going to run out and it's just going to be gone. And that that's not going to be as easy of a um, as easy of an excuse, I guess, to uh, say that's why you're presenting. What were you thinking, Jackie? Well, and like you said, once the testosterone is gone, um, saying you're a trans man with a full beard could be a dangerous thing. Say you do have a group of trans men who are looking for more. Oh, if you've yeah. got a supply, you're you're a mark at that point. That's a really good point. I think about the apocalypse a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think that's what I, I really like about the show so far um, is that that's my new show that I don't think has really been explored. Um but it's not just my new show could be used for like, you know, just character motivation. Like if you're, you need resources, right? So like that, it's something that transgender people, like whether it be estrogen or testosterone, like that's part of their therapy. Like, and you know, and that's not the only thing that'll be scarce, but like any sort of medicine, right. Any sort of supplies. Um, but yeah, like that's very true. And we do see a moment with Yorick in episode five, when him and 355, okay, they make it to Boston, right? So now it's a matter of figuring out where's Dr. Man. And then there's like military blockades and there's these, um, you know, radical groups who are like protesting uh, and New York happens upon their headquarters or one of their hideouts, right? And one of the leaders of the group, you know, basically says, hey, um, you know, she suspects that she thinks that he's transgender and basically offers him like, hey, if you need, help and shelter i know somebody who can help you you know and there's that moment where york takes the mask off sort of realizing he could get away with it in that moment um right. that would be more weird if he didn't take the mask off um but yeah 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 that that's an interesting moment i think that sort of i think it humanizes that group it doesn't like make them superficial it kind of gives them like more depth i think Absolutely. I was a huge fan of this opening. That was the opening for episode five, um, where Agent 355 says, stay, gives him this knife, and he immediately uses it to get himself into trouble. He breaks into this building and comes upon these protesters, the same ones who've been stamping anti-Brown rhetoric all over <clears throat> the walls everywhere. And we have this moment of humanization for these protesters who are without infrastructure, without food, without medicine. Um and terrified and know that the government knows something that they're not telling them. They have aid that they're not lending them. And of course they're angry. Of course they're literally at war with the war makers of this country because all support is gone. All hope is lost. Of course they distrust them. So that was, um, that was really, really illuminating to see those characters motivations and see them as someone who would extend aid to another to another man to to another person and, and help them out it was beautiful yeah especially with dr man's acknowledgement of those issues as well i think that's a good even though dr man doesn't look like she's even part of it she's clearly able to suss out that terrain um and and get a, a good view of it yes yeah. what did she say i wrote it down here give me one sec she and york are talking and he's like, he says, oh, you mean those crazies, those crazies out there with the smoke bombs? And she says, they think the government isn't telling them something. That's not crazy. On any given day, the U.S. government has people building shit that could kill every single one of us. Weapons, viruses, AI. Yeah. There you have it. And also when she says they think the government's not telling them something, she's also pointing at Yorick. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, dude, you're you're the problem, man. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and I love how that that distrust extends to like because they burn down man's laboratory like her her laboratory that she was using gets burnt down in like sort of like the middle of these firefights between the protesters and the military um and i sort of like how that distrust like extends to like into these school systems too because they were so intrinsically tied to the government yeah that part is interesting i really like that too because you know i think that they were i think they illustrated really well in the show that just because these people are distrusting the government doesn't mean that they have they're not violent people. Like she could have, she could have attacked Yorick, um, Stephanie, right? The one who was involved in the protests. Like she could have attacked Yorick as soon as she saw him, and she did not. She was yeah. like, she gave him information. She was trying to help them because it's really like we have distrust for our own government, but we're not trying to, we're not trying to like be aggressive or harm each other. And I think that that is like a misconception that the media likes to play into is that we're inherently violent. If we believe in conspiracy, conspiracy, I cannot talk right now. Conspiracies. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Conspiracies or mistrusting the government doesn't mean that we want to like harm other people. It's just, yeah, of course we don't trust the government. They've given us every reason to, to doubt them. Yeah, they're literally killing people all over the world yeah. all the time just for fun. <laughs> and I think the the um the media does this a lot with post-apocalyptic things too where you have the walking dead uh trope of like warring bands of human beings who will have to fight if they come across each other, which I think is very unrealistic in terms of human survival. We're probably not going to be killing each other over like old prisons, but there will be some of that. I don't know. It, it's a, it, it depends, right? Because like, I think it depends on like, I think for resources and in how desperate people are, maybe, I mean, like, you know, you have your Mad Max Fury Road or like the last of us, right. Where like people are like violent over natural resources out of desperation, but then you also have people who get power and they want to cling to that power. Right. Um, yes. and then violence, violence can become like a language unto itself. Uh, but, you know, it depends on what your take is, right? It's like if I think it, it, it there's sort of like a okay, there's an optimistic and pessimistic sort of view here, and it's like it just depends on what you're what you're trying to say with your work. Uh, I, I do agree, though. I like that like these protesters aren't inherently violent; like they're they're not treated like like monsters or animals, like it, or whatever. You're like however you want to word it, uh, they're treated like people, and they're like ultimately they they are. are um, the empathy is really important. And I think this show is doing a very good job at like showing empathy for everybody. Yeah, I agree. Particularly in such a fractured time as Americans where ideological lines draw such stark differences between people. It's interesting to look at people who disagree with you in a humanizing way and try and deconstruct why they see the world the way they do. It's illuminating. I I also appreciate to some degree that there is um, an appreciation of group mechanics in this. Uh, I, that is always my biggest thing. I, I think the best writing is when people, um, uh, people acknowledge how, uh, I mean this not in a, uh, government way, but just the word itself, a political transition, uh, actually functions a group dynamic where people are acting. And for example, uh, when, um, 
Roxanne pops in and she kills immediately kills the woman who's dying. That serves so many multiple functions. It, it tells one, I'm in charge. Two, I'm uh, doing the good thing, putting her out of her misery. And three, don't let yourself get this injured. Like it's establishing a lot of different things at the same time. And in a small group dynamic, that's that's not an ineffective way to manage things. There is utility in it, even if it is monstrous. And uh, it's important to acknowledge that, uh, but not uh, since we made a Walking Dead but, uh, reference to not indulge in it and say there's no other way. Um, right. It's there's yeah. there's like so it's like you could explore tribalism, but in a way that has more depth. Right. Like right. Not it's not so one dimensional. Um, and you can have like you could have characters like like Roxanne that she has she has a lot of dimensions to her, and we've just met her. Uh, we haven't really got to know her very well, but she makes a hell of an entrance. And I only know this because I've seen, you know, clips from the, like from the promotional material, but we're going to get them to know more about her and she's going to have more screen time. And I'm excited to see where that goes. I'm hoping she's very normal. <laughs> that's, that's my hope. Sure. Yeah. She's going to be completely chill and normal. That's just what's going to happen, Grim. Buckle up for a completely normal and chill um, arc. I, I can, again, I, I 100% see Nora either being a challenging leader or being like a perfect lieutenant who kind of smooths out her edges and is better able to, to expand their little, uh, their little tribe. So we'll go there. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But we can also that, you know, the political dimension also relates to the actual federal government and Jennifer Brown's plotline too. Because that's both small group dynamics and national dynamics put together. I was wondering if anyone had any thoughts on that, especially with like Amber Tamblin's character, um, whose name I always forget because I just call her Amber Tamblin. Um, and I had and to Google her. I had to Google her because I forgot what her name was, and then I didn't write it down, so I forgot it again. I literally put her as Amblin in my notes. Like, <laughs> well, I'm gonna call her Megan McCain because that's who she is. So I like that she mentioned going on the view. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was like it's not a secret. Like this is an inside joke now. Um, but she has this moment with Christine in the bathroom. Christine is uh, Jennifer Brown's most trusted aide, the one we've had most of a um, most of a relationship with as viewers so far. Who is literally miscarrying a child in the White House bathroom. Um, oh, I thought and- she was. I was she miscarrying. I thought it was just like a. She- a- emergency like i thought it was just- oh, she thinks right. that she thinks that she is right like it starts out with her thinking that she's miscarrying and then it leads into something else that's right that's right yeah the weaponized empathy where uh uh amber tamblin's character is absolutely like embedding herself with you know uh jennifer brown's number one entirely for political motivations and how it's it's very manipulative and also like really well done and not overt absolutely well, and who knows how much of that happens any given day when these these our, our representatives have to talk to each other and deal with each other and manipulate each other. Yeah, when I used to other. work in those circles, I did the exact same thing. So <laughs> it's oh. not it, it's it's literally just how shit works. It's it's who determines who gets health care. Like God, stakes are pretty big. Rending, yeah. Oh yeah, it's terrible. It's all the worst people, <laughs> and you're one of them. <laughs> so that's oh. a problem. It's, hey, you made it's it out, brother. Of, I'm, I, it's like sort of like the transactional, like everything. everything's transactional, right? 
it's like a terrible like yeah. you just you don't know who's being real like in genuine and who's not i have to imagine that probably kind of messes your brain up a little bit grim like being in that environment oh it totally messes up your brain it absolutely like changes how you think i can't hear someone charismatic speaking to me and being like pleasant to me without getting like a bad feeling in the pit of my belly because like it, it just it instantly makes me distrust them what do they want from me? Yeah, it's that's it's exactly what it is. And if they're charismatic at all, I just immediately get kind of an immediate revulsion. That's awful. Oh god. Yeah. yeah it's very normal. It sounds terrible. <laughs> How do you deal with hanging out with all three of us? <laughs> now you guys are all chill. You're like normal human beings. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to get that printed out and put on like <laughs> put on like a card or something just as an award. I'm like I am a normal human being according to this guy named Grim. <laughs> Mike's going to get like the, the Frank Reynolds award that says he's not donkey-brained. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Politics that that is politics though. And it's like you don't do anything overtly. You make everyone your friend. You act like everyone's your friend. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a disgusting, gross business. And uh, it's the people who should have the least control over our lives have the most. That's it's, maybe it's part cool of the weirdest good. thing about transferring from Yorick and 355's reality where they're literally tromping through forests. They have nothing on their minds but a destination and survival, you know, to this White House, which is still post-apocalyptic. Just still without so many, uh, so many things, so many parts of basic survival and still functioning in that Machiavellian way. Right. And the, the power grabs are going to be that much more dramatic when they, they finally uh, begin to roost. Whenever Yorick's secret drops and, you know, that that revelation is going to be huge. Um, I'm I'm definitely excited for that. I'm also excited for Sarah Palin to uh make her a little war uh, oh that's right because she just landed that's right yeah she just landed and she's mm. also like you know got le- legitimate claim for the presidency so that's that's fun and she has friends she's already starting her little entourage with um miss megan mccain whose name i still have not learned sorry <laughs> i will tell her you name- i don't know who wrote this in but they are actually brilliant whoever wrote in that uh the uh, uh megan mccain and sarah palin are not buds and they like are forming a coalition but they're absolutely like they don't really like each other that is a brilliant bit of writing because i think it's so like people especially on the left are very big into uh kind of assuming the entire right is united and i hear that trope all the time but whenever i get actual uh uh whenever i get actual um insight into the right and the machinations of it it is these they also aren't all aligned they are building their own direct coalitions um and it's it's interesting to make the the like more reactionary component not flat you know to make it something that has to negotiate amongst itself too. Yes. I mean, they're all horrible, but there's like different, <laughs> it's a prism of horrible. A prism of horribleness. <laughs> yes. So I, I enjoyed that bit of writing. That was really good writing. So we are the White House. We've got Jennifer Wigmore is that's the actor who plays Regina. 
Regina, Regina Oliver, and she's the one that basically was injured in Israel and has like a, a like she has like a rightful like a legitimate claim to the presidency, but she was MIA basically because of this accident that happens. So then right. she comes back and she kind of knows that she's not going to be handed like power. She has to like basically like manipulate Fight and find her way. Yeah. And so Kimberly Cunningham's character, who's played by Amber Tamblyn, which as you said, is basically Megan, <laughs> Megan McCain and like Sarah Palin proxies. <laughs> um, they both sort of realize like, they, like you said, like they don't like each other, but there's like this mutual respect because they know they're going to have to work together if they want to get power back. Yeah. And they an acknowledgement too of their shared interest and their shared worldview, and it's I, I like that negotiation. And it, it, I don't know, I felt that was really good writing. I've seen those conversations happen before, um, and it was nice to see it um, in something that acknowledges both the horribleness of whatever they're going to do, but also that there's different dynamics there too. I think it's important too that we see like because I, I and I've already seen this take before. Like where someone will say like, oh, why are they not focusing more on Yorick, the guy I identify with? Not calling anyone out in particular, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're <laughs> mad that it's like focusing on Jennifer Brown and like that dynamic. It's like, well, it's important to show that depth and like the reality of that. And like, it's still compelling. Uh, but what do you what do you think, Lacey? Um, I was going to say, um, I really like how they are. They're building up this coalition with the Republicans and like the conservative minded uh, women in the White House, because you get that in the comic. But it's it seems like a much more like kind of fleeting uh, plot line. Right. And it's so interesting. So the fact that we're getting it drawn out and it seems like it's going to have a lot of depth and maybe go on for a while, like we're going to see this unravel. I think that that, like you were saying, Grim is like a really genius um, uh, writing. I don't know who did it, but it's amazing because I think it's really important to see the dynamics of like the power structure that we have in America during an apocalyptic event, basically. And um, I, I just think that the way that they handled um, what was her character's name? We keep forgetting it. Kimberly Cunningham <laughs> is Amber Tamblyn, who is amazing, by the way. Her performance is incredible, and I love the way that she's doing it. Um, I think that going back to what you were saying, Grim, like the the transactional empathy that was happening there, I feel like that moment that she had with Christine, like being with her when she was having the miscarry scare, and then also going to the the doctor with her to see the sonogram and stuff. I feel like she was uh, attempting to make like a genuine connection with Christine. Cause she was like berating her before all of that. Right. right. I feel yeah. like she was trying to make a genuine connection with her and was really trying to take care of her. And I feel like her character was like a little radicalized by the fact that Christine was like operating like a political person and being like, this lady is just trying to, manipulate me and use me and try to get me to see like her side of things yeah, so I feel like says, it kind of pushed her towards Regina so when Regina showed up her mind was kind of made up like that's the lady that I'm gonna have on my team even though I I hate her guts like I really don't like her very much <laughs> that that's where I'm gonna go yeah yeah well, I get Christine that. literally says to her she said can you blackmail me later like I'm bleeding like crazy can we not do this right now but i've never heard that phrase before transactional empathy i love that i'm obsessed with that now 
Yeah. I mean, it's also kind of when you work in those circles, it has to come naturally to you. So it's both not purposeful and purposeful at the same time. It just becomes a second nature and it just becomes how you relate to the world, even if you don't know you're doing it. Like it's um, someone there definitely has insight into the mindset for sure. Like they uh, got a bug or something. So we are like, I, 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 and I've seen this uh, because we, with Jennifer Brown, she becomes doubtful of aging 355, right? And like her story and like the culprit ring. So she wants more information on that because she's scared uh, because she's lost contact with them. And then we transition back and Allison Mann doesn't trust 355. Um, You can tell like she's very wary of her because of her connections. Uh, She's obviously a government figure, right? So she doesn't really know her. Um, And so I think it's something that's going to really transform the dynamic of this group moving forward is their ability to empathize and open up to each other, but they're not going to immediately get there. It's going to be an arc. And I, I like that. I like that. They're not like there's a dynamic and there's a chemistry, right. But they don't immediately trust each other. There's still this level of like uncertainty and uh, you know, I I like, Oh, they don't necessarily like each other. Right. It's more just like, uh, I guess we're going to go. Like Dr. Man doesn't seem very like gun ho about it. At first, you know, she's like, well, I'm going to go to California, right? So I'm not going to She has her do... own plans. Yeah. Right. Like, you guys can come with me, um, but I'm going to California because I'm not going back to the White House or going anywhere else, but my to my other lab. Right. Yeah. I, I like that vibe. And also the, just the distinction between all of them on that front. It's also kind of when you're an adult, uh, you usually, the older you get, the more you're only associating directly with people you want to associate with. And they are kind of dealing with that dynamic because of the four circumstances. And that part is entertaining, I think, all on its own. Oh, Allison Mann is going to be great comedic relief through this journey. I cannot wait. Already, um, Yorick says, you want to hear a tuna fish sandwich joke right at the end of a very (laughs) tense moment? And then like five minutes later, Allison brings it back. She's like, so what's the joke? So great. Um, I love... I love that, and I we've talked about this like with Doctor Mann's moment where she like lays it all out there, right? But like, I love that that what precedes that is basically her and York being like, we need to get like we need to drink something, like just trying to deal with like their own stresses, and it's all they have is Chardonnay, so they like literally get drunk on Chardonnay <laughs> and then have this really thoughtful conversation about gender, right? And I think it's like really, um, it's a good it's a good omen, I think for what we can expect, like how the writers are handling these characters. Like I, I trust them. It was great. It was great. And it's also a lot of the, um, a lot of the comic and presumably more of the upcoming episodes are like a travel log almost because it's, it's a lot of moving from place, you know, a lot of hurry up and wait, a lot of sitting around bullshitting, going from point A to point B. And um, it definitely bodes well how well this uh, Chardonnay-fueled rant uh, happened. (laughs) Uh, We're also going to definitely hear a lot of jokes and see a lot of magic tricks that other other people may not be interested in. I want to talk about this. I thought about Jackie when this happened where uh, where 355 brings out a card deck and it's like, show me a trick. And like York is just like, like, he's like, this is beneath me. But okay. <laughs> I knew it. I knew this. Yes. Talk about fan service. 
they listen to our podcast, guys. They're listening to us. Now we know. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, Obviously, this was filmed like months ago, but come on, humor me. I uh, I do. Someone in Vulture uh, picked that up in their episode analysis for the record. Um, they called the episode Poor Little Rich Kids, uh, which I thought was, was pretty funny. Um, but uh, it said... Uh, uh, yeah, it was here ago. I had a real worst person, you know, just made a great point moment when you were called close up magic, basic and fraudulent and below my skill level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, as we said, the Yorick would have like a podcast and he'd just be like, let me tell you about close up magic. Like he'd have a rant every week about that. He would. He is just the perfect uh, avatar for our generation's uh, fail son. Um self-importance it's just perfect i like all of the similarities between him and job from arrested development oh my god just you know uh his desire to uh really specify his role within magic you know you know illusions michael illusion michael mm, trick is something a whore does for money like, <laughs> <laughs> illusions <laughs> the degree to which he takes it so seriously is fantastic and uh it's definitely the east coast version of job and i appreciate that just perfect i yeah. love i love our introduction to job's character i just I, I think about it every once in a while where like they all go to his show right and he's like doing his yeah. introduction and he just like his cape just flips around the wrong way and it just completely messes up like what he's trying to do, but he's so serious. He can't like break the character, but the, it's just like shots of the family awkwardly watching him like obviously be goofy <laughs> and mess up and embarrass himself. Uh, God bless good characterization. It's always fun whenever someone is like inherently in something goofy and kind of silly, but they take it very serious. That is always a great beat for humor for me. Well, and that's the thing with the musician too in a live settings that you have to have a bit of a sense of humor about it. Cause it is, it's inherently silly what you're doing. You know, everybody in the room knows that you've got something up your sleeve, you know, but the, the sense of humor, the, the wink is how you play it off, you know? So if you don't have that wink, if you have this self-importance, this need to prove yourself, it, it just falls flat. It, it looks just as silly as it is. Also, uh, just pulling back to an earlier moment, by the way, I thought it was funny when 355 was trading things and she like wanted to trade a grenade. And all I could think about with that was the vast majority of grenades in America are 100% like fake or decommissioned. So I kept imagining she was just like selling like decommissioned grenades. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you know until you need them? Right. Like it's, you're just basically, pretty much. It's like a, you're going to operate under like the, the good faith that it's legit, but like it may not be. Yeah. Are you going to live to turn in that receipt, bruh? How is that going to go? Yeah. That, that would be a good co comedic moment if someone chucked a grenade and it, it wasn't a real one, but it's still like five pounds of lead and hurt them real bad. <laughs> Honestly, I did. Uh, I feel so bad, but I did laugh a little bit because that lady gets shot and like, <laughs> presumably dies and i was like the whole trade was pointless she could have just took the motorcycle at this point <laughs> but yorick made her yorick puts her in these positions where she has to kill people and then he has the temerity the very nerve to look at her and say well if you could quit killing people then everything would be way better he's such a little shit it he is he makes me crazy 
I love that moment though, because it's, it's a good dynamic, right? Because like, he also like, he's like, I have to go back and get my phone, which of course, like 355 is just mentally done with him because of the shit that they just right. went through. And she like screams at him basically. And like, tell, like basically calls him out um, for what he's doing. Because all he was using his phone for was looking at videos of uh, Beth, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Although some of those videos, I, as a man, understand maybe want to hold on to more than uh, than was shown on screen. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he did, he, he did look at her when he was in the tent. He was like, this isn't porn. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> a weird thing to open with, right? For someone who's not looking yeah. at porn. Yeah, I'm totally not porn. I am not watching porn right now. Also, knock next time before you come in here. Yeah. <laughs> also, I, I was uh, debating with someone over this. Is is she sleepwalking in the intro to episode four? I like, think so. That's what I, I mean, thought, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell if she was sleepwalking or just very tired because of all the exertion and, and not enough food they mentioned. And she was just kind of in a halfway state, you know. Refresh our memory um, for the, the dummies and the new kids. What's uh what's happening? Episode four, they're on their way through the forest, right? And she's sleepwalking. Right. And she's like it. she's imagining herself singing on stage and it oh, feels almost yes. kind of like a what could have been um moment in her head but she's she's actually walking and um i think you can presume sleepwalking but i also kind of was like maybe she's just hungry and tired and she's kind of imagining shit too you know it's it's um in theory a little open to the imagination but we'll i mean we'll find out if she's a sleepwalker pretty quick but there was that moment at the beginning of her introduction, too, where she does that little dance in front of the mirror. I wonder if they're, like, dropping us breadcrumbs about her being a performer of some sort. I don't know. Oh, I'm sure she's done it for work all the time. Like, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, thing about, shit. That's, that's the thing about 355 is that, like, she has to present, like, this image, right? Like, and we talked about this for the first episode, like, how it's hard. It's like, is that her or is that the character that she's playing? Because she has to do that, right? She has to, like, embed herself. And so she is inherently a performer to a degree. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe it was something that she did before. Maybe she has aspirations. I like that we're kind of getting like, there's a mystery there, right? It's not immediately answered. Yes. Right. It's, I don't know. I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate that everything about her is basically unreliable. And that's kind of a fun, um, it, it, I like that mystery that gets added, especially when we're talking Culper Ring stuff, because I have a feeling it's going to turn out that it's like the, uh, the enigma at Amagara fault where she went in human on one end and on the other end, she's just a weird loopy shaped monster. Oh, and hell yeah. So <laughs> yeah, this hole was meant for me, you know, good times. <laughs> it's calling to me. <laughs> <laughs> Except she was like shoved in there when she was like a child. So, you know, yeah, yes, different. Right. And I mean, that'll be interesting to see because we leave things kind of open, right. For her and her mentor, or right. whoever recruited her or whoever this person is that like trained her, um, it's left open-ended. And I assume we'll probably go back to that um, and explore that further as to like what happened there and how did she end up in the culpa ring? It, we're definitely, and also what's happening with the beacon in the very end. I think that's going to be a fun question to answer in the, the end of episode five, when she looks in her bag and the beacons kind of flash in red. Yeah, I was wondering what was going on with that. I didn't know if anybody had any thoughts, but she had that beacon in there. And I was like, hmm, interesting. My first thought was, that's a call from Fran, 
the one that we've learned just a little bit about their direct supervisor and the culper ring. Um, I think that, I think that that's what this is. Um, and that's why it had such, cause it had such a profound effect on three, five, five. Like this was big. Right. Yeah. I think it's definitely, um, that it, we're going to want an answer here pretty quick. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Like, yesterday i can't wait for the next episode to come out <laughs> next episode drop in tonight at 11 or uh, right. 12 if you're uh, uh east coast every uh Oof. yeah every monday or sunday night however you want to put it at midnight there's going to be a new episode and um the next episode looks promising i mean we're gonna we're going back to uh the amazons and also jennifer brown and also we'll see more 355 Yorick and man on their journey and uh, a lot of exciting stuff. A lot of interesting things are uh, brewing right now. Yeah, absolutely. What, uh, what was your all's favorite part? Let's uh, play that game. Uh, could do a quick little round of, of what was your favorite part of the last two episodes? Can I go first here? You absolutely can. I've been thinking about this the whole episode, that first scene where York picks the lock um, and ends up in this storeroom where he meets some of the protesters and you can see this is where they've been making their posters this is where they've been making their um their agit prop this is where this is their base he stumbled into a base of the people who hate his mother who hate the president and would love to know why he's there and what he's doing and instead of immediately attacking him they offer him aid um that um Army personnel describe their near constant standoffs with protesters um, with no infrastructure or medicine or food. And it's just every 15 minutes or so, the bombs start going off and then everyone clears off and then they come back and skirmish again. And it's just days on end of war with desperate, hungry people. Insane. Amazing apocalypse building. Really well done. Yeah, that's 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 it's good times uh mike do you have one i do actually um one i like how we're introduced to dr man because she stabs yorick in the back um, yes as a defense sort of like because she's like well <laughs> who are you people just coming into my like space you know like just barging in like so of course she's like concerned and like assumes the worst um but i also like how uh yorick is just like i like how yorick is making observations about her just like assumptions based on what he's seen and like some things he's right about and he's of course really smug about that but then he gets stabbed in the back <laughs> um and i uh yeah, I like that he that's was having a true. didn't i tell you so kind of moment just as he got stabbed too it was so immediately great. gets brought back down to earth which is a very york thing to happen <laughs> <laughs> everyone's got a good plan until they get stabbed yeah it throws you off your what does he say what does he say in that scene too when 355 is patching him up he's like stabbings happen or something yeah. <laughs> yes yeah, yeah very casual just like hey these things happen <laughs> Lacey, what was your favorite part of the last two episodes oh man i definitely think that i loved the camping scene like when they're traveling to boston 355 in york um I'm very biased though because I loved that part of the comics, like their chemistry, the the dialogue, the back and forth between them, because they're very polar opposites. Like 355 is like no nonsense. Yorick is all nonsense. So <laughs> to watch them interact with each other is hilarious. And I also feel like you get to learn more about those two characters who are 
I think integral to like the entire story. So that was definitely my favorite part. And then when it ends with him like running out with the mask on to like scare off those those two ladies that are like going through her shit, I was dying laughing. I thought that, that was yes. so funny. Oh my god. <laughs> So yeah. that was definitely my favorite part. I just love those two interacting with each other. That was, yeah, that was, that was brilliant. I love that. Um, for me, I, I kind of already said it, but it was when um, Kimberly Cunningham, uh, AKA uh, Megan McCain and yes. uh, the, uh, the former uh, president or sorry, former ag uh, secretary are, are talking and they're kind of working through their differences um it, it like reminds me of like you go into an italian place and you look at like one of the plates that's like needs to be cleaned up that's fettuccine alfredo and you see the the butter separating from the cheese and you're like shit they make the sauce the real way here like the one that doesn't <laughs> reheat right the one that is literally just butter and cheese emulsified together and that like that's how you know it's going to be legit when you finally eat that's kind of how I'm feeling when I saw that scene. It's like, okay, someone knows what they're doing for sure. And this is going to be sweet. Damn, I was excited that des- about what that description made me hungry. Holy fuck. <laughs> I know what, what in an analogy, like for real. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it too far out there? I felt it was kind of, no, I love it. It was no, brilliant. It just made me hungry, dude. Whew. When you see someone do something right, like, and it's not even what you're like necessarily focused on and you're like, shit, they really know what they're doing. It makes you so much more confident about like everything coming down the pike and it makes you a lot more open to different possibilities. I enjoy it thoroughly. That's the most exciting thing about this series right now too, is that there are some, it does need to be brought up to speed. It needs to be brought to this year and they're doing it and it's going really, really well. It is going really well. I think that um, just like you guys were saying, it's so exciting because I do feel like we're in really capable hands, like the writers, the cast, like everything has been. And I don't want to like be like over positive about it. Like we're like, you know, like talking it up just because we love the comics. It's like I would have been very critical of it if it wasn't if they weren't doing it right. But I feel like they've been doing everything like at least for me in a very satisfying way. And I feel like for you guys too, so far. Absolutely. Most comic adaptations are garbage. Like it's very nice when someone's like hitting all the right notes. That's like, I think comic fans are a difficult crew to impress as well though, because you do have such a relationship with the source content. You know what I mean? And everyone reading it has their own individual reaction to it's an experience holding this book and going through it or going through these images. And uh, it's rough to do. It's hard. Absolutely. And we can be very insufferable as comic fans. <laughs> Bullshit. Well, <laughs> wow. Rude. Why don't you well, there's a reason. Yourself? There's a reason why fandom okay. communities all eventually suck, though. It's because being a fan of things, it's too easy to lose perspective. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And, and also, when I'm talking about insufferability. I'm talking primarily for myself. <laughs> we're, we're, I was just kidding. I was just giving you grief. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Like, no, we people who like really love something can be very critical and be like very insufferable about it. And you have to like something that I think is really important here is that like this is a television show. It needs to be. It had to be modernized. 
Uh, there's all these yes. things that it needs to do. You you can't like you have to build up to it because I, I already see people saying like, well, what about going to these other locations? It's like they're going to get there. Like, relax. Like we're going to this needs to be built up and be done properly. You can't just like skip ahead in 20 spaces. <laughs> and Why are you in a rush? Work. Yeah. 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 Enjoy the ride. <laughs> Enjoy it. Like, it's so weird that they're in a rush. It's like, hey, when it's over, it's over. Like- yeah. Well, I have a theory that there's a group of content appreciators, a bunch of fandoms that um, almost exclusively get off on tearing at the creators who bring to life their their favorite creations. Like, we've all seen, like, the angry comic book guy trope play out, like, all over the place. It's... Do, it's a trope. It's tropes. Do you th- mean it's, through like jealousy? Because like in some kind oh, yeah. of way, they're kind of like cosmically, I should have been in charge because I love it more than them. Yes. Or is it something else. Yes. I think that's yeah. an element of it. I think it's when people read these, these books or comic books or whatever fandom you're into, it becomes yours. You know, you're, you're expressing your own id through these characters and through their adventures. It's very uh, voyeuristic in a way. And I think they do take ownership of it and they take insult because they don't know any other way to intelligently critique things without being negative. I think a lot of people are afraid to love things because other people will critique them and they will feel bad and wrong. It's a complex internet problem. Yeah. That's that. I, I like that framing. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, does anyone have any last notes? I can't wait to see agent three fifty five beat the shit out of someone with that baton. Yes. That's where I'm at. <laughs> I cannot I wait. Fran. I cannot wait for her to like the to take it out on that tink sound and just like immediately like just go to town on somebody. It's gonna be great. Yes. yes. I want to see Nora have a moment of strength too, because she's had she's taken a lot of L's lately. See, I don't want to see that in the sense that it's gonna be horrifying. <laughs> it's gonna, oh, when yeah. she oh. is in charge, she is gonna do some shit. Oh and I can God. feel it. And the thing is, she's so capable, that character, so intelligent. Like, she saves them multiple times. She's the one who looks at Hero and says, do not tell them who your mom is. Like, do not do it. Um, So she's really intelligent. So if she gets scary, I mean, who knows what's going to happen. And she's got her kid, too. She's worried about her kids. So, yeah. Nothing is scarier than someone terrified about their kid who's also extremely competent. Hauling yeah. a sick kid across the country during the apocalypse. Can you imagine? I would become feral. I would be vicious. <laughs> yeah, I can yep. imagine. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to uh, more of Doctor Man, and I hope to see Ampersand and Doctor Man's interactions because in the comic, Ampersand's a little shit. I mean, yeah, I love him, but he's a little shit. So <laughs> a lot of comedic moments with him doing stuff, and like Doctor Man just being like, "I am so over you." Yeah. <laughs> and it's so funny too because Ampersand is just like Yorick. Like he's like always causing problems and like running away and like getting into his own stuff. And then Yorick is so pissed off about it. And it's like, that is you. Yeah. That's you. <laughs> it is. You are him. Yes. <laughs> yep. I definitely agree. Well, on that note, uh, gonna wish everyone a good week and i hope everyone is happy and healthy and gets a chance to see episode six where we learn uh that weird al is dead (laughs) you too brother man (laughs) 